A basketball hero around here is treated like a god. I mean, how can you ever find out what he could really do? I don't want this to be the high point of his life. I've seen him, the real sad ones. They sit around the rest of their lives talking about the glory days when they were 17 years old. You know, most people would kill to be treated like a god just for a few moments. Welcome to Keeping the Nostalgia Alive, the Indiana Basketball Memory Show. I am your host, Billy Powell. Um, I was told not to be nervous today, but it's kind of hard not to be nervous when you're, you're talking to an Indiana high school basketball legend and, and uh, just basketball royalty from the state of Indiana. And, and we're smack dab right into the middle of the Indiana high school basketball tournament for the boys. And uh, today with us on the program, we have a legend. If I sat here and uh, read everything that this guy has done or been a part of or has, has accomplished, I wouldn't get a chance to chat with him. So uh, I'm not going to, without further ado, uh, Bobby Plump has joined us today. And, and Bobby, thank you so much for spending some time to, to help keep the nostalgia alive and, and, and remind us of those memories of uh, the days of yesterday. Well, you're very welcome. It's nice of you to remember, and it's nice talking with you. Bobby, tell us, who, who introduced you to the game of basketball? You know, there wasn't much to do back in the 50s. Uh, uh, I graduated uh, for your audience there in 1954 uh, from high school, and it, obviously it was a different era, and basketball was something to do. Uh, I became interested in it, and my father uh quit teaching school when mom died when I was five years old back in 1941. And when I was in the fourth grade, he went to work in a pump factory and, and there must have been some spare material around because he built a backboard for me and a goal and a basketball. And he gave it to me at Christmas time. And I put it up in the highest place we had in our, uh, in our in our uh, property, which was a smokehouse. And maybe it was nine feet. And then a, a neighbor put up a, a goal. And so we'd play basketball morning, uh, afternoon, evenings. He had lights. And uh, uh, we'd play. then we got to playing uh, uh, baseball in the daytime and basketball at night on these outdoor courts. So uh, the interest in basketball came from the county tourney, which was really bigger to us than the state tournament. Uh, because you were king of the county, and we had it at Milan uh, back in the 40s, and I obviously, as a student, I'd go to the games, and that's where I became interested in it, and found out against uh, playing against uh, guys in our little town uh, that I could beat them, so I thought, well, what the heck, might as well give it a try, right? Did did you like were you kind of did you like baseball and basketball about the same amount and who did you follow in baseball? Well, in baseball we followed the Cincinnati Reds. We were uh, uh, Milan is just forty five miles due west of Cincinnati, and we used to go up there and not hold games. And uh, you know I saw Jackie Robinson and uh, uh, all uh, all of the Dodgers at that time. We didn't know anything about the controversy was going on. Yeah, we weren't that. We were a bunch of naive kids that were up there enjoying the game, rooting for the Reds, and they always got beat. Uh, you know, Don Newcomb is a pitcher and Campanella is a catcher and uh, Pee Wee Reese and uh, just all the uh, people that uh, – all the teams that came in. 
I'd have to say I, I enjoyed basketball, uh, probably a little more than baseball, although I did play. I turned down IU, Purdue, Michigan State, Cincinnati, Tennessee, and 35 other colleges to go to Butler University before people realized Butler played pretty good basketball. And uh, I said single game and career records there, but I also played four years of baseball uh, for Butler University. So uh, I enjoyed uh, – I just enjoyed all sports, actually. And uh, since we were a small school, we only had three. We And we were a little different. We played baseball in the fall. We played basketball in the winter, and we ran track in the, in the spring. That, those are the only three sports we had. What was the game of basketball like at that time before you got into Milan High School? I mean, what? I mean, uh, I mean, did and, and can you tell us about the first high school basketball game you went to and what the atmosphere was like? Well, the first basketball game I went to at, at Milan always at, at any the fans have to realize that, or your audience has to, uh, should realize that basketball was king we didn't have any professional sports in indiana and the only way a small town could get recognized was through their basketball team uh i mean not too many people came in and wanted to take science tests and math and all those type things uh so the first game that i went to i was probably in the i don't know fourth or fifth grade uh went to home games at milan and and became interested in them we Milan was a town of 1,100 back then. We had a gymnasium that seated a thousand, and it wasn't big enough. Uh, our last two years in high school, uh, Versailles, which is eight miles from Milan and uh, the county seat, built a 2,000 seat uh, auditorium, and we played all our home games at Versailles and could have sold more than the 2,000 tickets. The town would empty out. Uh, for your audience, in 1954, after we won the state tournament, we were the smallest team to do it, and we had defeated uh, a team in the semi-state finals of Christmas Addicts. They had a player named Oscar Robertson on that team. Uh, and it just created a lot of interest. We spent the night in Indianapolis, and, and Milan's 80 miles southeast of Indianapolis. We drove down the next day to Milan, and they had state police there to protect the town because there wasn't anybody left. I mean, basically everybody came to the tournament. So we had an 18-mile-long caravan behind us, we got to Sunman, which is nine miles from Milan, uh, and people were walking and cars were parked along the side of the road. We thought there was an accident there. The, now, keep in mind, Milan was a town of 1,100. The state police estimated between 30 and 40,000 people came through that town that day to greet us. And we thought, man, look what happens when you win a state tournament. Well, <laughs> since we were the smallest team, it did create that excitement. And it, a guy, <laughs> he and his wife were in that 18-mile-long caravan behind us. Now, this is nine miles out. He said, I'm going to walk. He beat his wife, who was driving the car, <laughs> to Milan by walking. They estimated 90% of the adult population in Indiana watched or listened 
to that game. They came, by the way, those thirty or 40,000 people came from five states to that wow. little town of Milan, Indiana. So before you, I mean, and growing up, before you got there, what kind of, what kind of tradition or basketball uh, history did Milan have? Well, the Milan had it, and I'm going to say it again. The county attorney was probably more in, uh, more of an emphasis because nobody ever thought a team from Milan was ever going to win a tournament. Uh, and for your fans, I, I can I'll tell them very briefly. There were 752 schools. All 752 schools start out for the tournament in 64 sites. So that week, you cut it down to 64 teams. Every Saturday for a month, you play two games if you win. There are four teams in each site. That goes to the, after the, we call that the sectional. Then we go to the regional, you play two games. Go to the semi-state, play two games. Then you go to the state tournament and play two games. We call them the Sweet 16 and the Final Four. And the NCAA that your fans are, are familiar with would never have heard of Sweet 16 and Final Four if the Indiana High School Athletic Association had copyrighted it because the NCAA called Indiana and said, have you copyrighted the Sweet 16 and Final Four? Wow. So uh, the, the tournament, the county tourney was really, and it was held at Milan for a number of years, and, and it, was, it was exciting. But Milan had never won a game in the regional in the history of our school. We had won four sectionals and always defeated the first game. So, uh, but everybody followed. It didn't make any difference if we won, lost. I mean, obviously, we wanted them to win. But everybody followed the teams. They were, they were heroes to us that were in grade school. I mean, we looked up to them like, I can remember thinking even when I was in the sixth or seventh grade, I thought, Boy, if I could just make the varsity and have a uniform, my life would be complete. I didn't care if I sat on the bench. Uh, it was that type of excitement. Uh, and, and it's hard to realize and to have people realize that today when you go back. I remember the first year when we were juniors, we went to the Final Four. And... We, uh, we came up on a Friday to Indianapolis. It was held at Hinkle, Butler Fieldhouse, Hinkle Fieldhouse now. By the way, again, for your audience, Butler Fieldhouse, Hinkle Fieldhouse now, seated 15,000 back then. It was built in 1928. You got a ticket for the final four for $3.50. There's four teams, so you see two games that morning, and then the Two winners play that night. They were scalping tickets for 25 and $30 to get into that 15,000-seat field house to watch that game. So it, it, the interest of every kid in a small town back then, and large cities uh, also, but in, especially in a small town, was to be on the varsity basketball team. I mean that was uh, that was a dream uh, that uh, I was the last of six children in our family. None of the others participated in sports, and I thought, man, I'd, I'd really stand out if I had a uniform, made the uh, and made the varsity. Uh, I, I, I hope that your audience can understand from my 
enthusiasm here that it was so important. Uh, I, I don't even know how to compare it uh, to today. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of people back then, and even even when I was in high school in the '80s, you know, to win just a sectional championship, you were almost a god. Well, you you were because your audience today, probably a lot of them, fill out uh, the tournament brackets and they pick the winners and they get to the championship game. Every family in Indiana did that for the state tournament from the through uh, the 90s really and I, I know we did it at our house and you were you looked at each uh, game to see how many you want and it, it was kind of a competition it was such a uh, uh, if you want a sectional it was publicized throughout the state and then they brought TV in in 1951. Uh, obviously, the whole state could watch the tournament. And your audience, maybe this will uh, resonate with the audience. From 1956, I think it was, through 1980, we drew better than a million people to our state tournament. The last year of the multi-class, I mean single class, was 1997. We 780,000 people in 1997 to our state tournament. Now, we went to the multi-class system the next year, and the attendance dropped to 480,000, and it has not been back there since. But a million people attended the state tournament from the uh, mid-50s through the 70s and 80s. You, you know, back in that day, there there was no AAU, and there was really not a lot of organized uh, ball playing. I mean, how did you guys, how did your teammates and you guys grow up? Did you Was it just playing at one person's house and then at another person's house? I mean, I mean, how did you guys gel well, together? Uh, well, uh, actually, only three of them lived in Milan. Okay. Uh, you could only dress ten. Three lived in Milan, three lived on the farm, and myself and three others lived in a little town called Pierceville. We had maybe 75 people in our town, so we only had, I had a goal, and uh, and Roger Schroeder had a goal, and then another guy, uh, Glenn Butts, put up a goal. Uh, so we played at Schroeder's because they had uh, hung lights out and that type of thing. Uh, it, it was a, uh, it was a, quieter time uh there wasn't as much going on we didn't know as much again we were very naive i, I, I was going to tell you that uh we get, we practiced at hinkle field house on a friday before the tournaments and back then we had the first year we went to the semi-state that and the tournament uh finals was in indianapolis Radio was the only communication of that, and radio stations came out. They interviewed us as we after we finished our practice that Friday in 1953. Well, Shelbyville's twenty some miles from Indianapolis, and we had to drive through there. The radio station didn't go beyond Shelbyville, and we were uh, we got to Shelbyville 15 minutes ahead of when the radio program was going to uh, air. 
what did we do? We pulled off the road and waited 15 minutes so we could hear ourselves on radio. <laughs> I mean, that was a big deal. <laughs> um, tell us That's a little true story. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, and, and growing up with those guys, and of course, you know, you said three only lived in Milan. I mean, how did those bonds kind of cement? You know, and were there times where the friendships? You know, I mean, did you guys get along all the time? Well, we really didn't. Uh, uh, Pierceville, they considered us the other side of the track kids, and uh, uh, the guys from Milan were, uh, m- you know, much more sophisticated. And in grade school, I remember uh, uh, my sister basically raised me uh, as a mother, and uh, she was older and bought a, uh, she bought me a snow outfit. It was cold and windy and snowy, and I thought it looked great, and it was warm, so I wore it to school in fourth or fifth grade. Well, the guys from Milan didn't like that. I found out later they didn't have one. So, But I remember two of my teammates and the, and the doctor's son laughed at me, threw me down, rubbed my face in the snow, and said, hey, big sissy, and all that stuff. You know something? After we started playing basketball and they found out that uh, the kids from Pierceville were pretty good, they kind of forgot about that. They said, no, that wasn't me. No, I didn't do that. Yeah, I didn't forget about it. But after the basketball, when they found out we could play basketball, we were their best friends. Bobby, what what was it like to um, – uh, I, I lost my train of thought there for a second. But, but, but what was it like – you said you you were naive at that time, and you were talk you talked about how Jackie Robinson was coming up. What was it like for you guys, or did you guys even think about it of what was really happening in the state of Indiana with basketball and integration and everything like that, and and social and racial issues? Well, uh, the team that uh, Oscar Robertson played on was all black, and, we, and the next two years they won the state tournament. The first team from Indiana, and we've had a tournament since 1911. They were the first team, all-black team to win a state tournament in Indiana. They were the first team from Indianapolis to win a uh, state tournament. They only lost one game the next two years after we beat them in uh, 1954. And they were the first all-black team in the nation in high school to win a, uh, a state tournament. We never talked about it. It was never discussed. Ripley County is where we were from. It was an all-white county. We had played against blacks before, Lawrenceburg, Rising Sun, North Vernon, Seymour. We never discussed it. Did we know that there was a a problem, racism? Absolutely, we knew it. In fact, uh, when we stayed in, uh, when we were in Indianapolis, after the morning games, they knew that we were going to play Attics. And we walked a couple of blocks to the old Apex Grill for our pregame meal, cars would stop. We had our letter jackets on from uh, uh, the year before. They'd roll down their window, beat those niggers. And I apologize for the language, but I'm trying to tell you what it was like. Oh, understood. Beat those niggers. Get them out of here. We were, honestly, we were shocked. (laughs) We never talked like that. There wasn't it, the only thing we talked about when we played Christmas Addicts. Marvin Wood was our coach. He was only 26 years old, the youngest coach to win a state tournament in '54. Uh, Before we went up on the floor at Hinkle Fieldhouse, Butler then, as I say, uh, he said, "Fellas, 
I want to tell you something about this Christmas Addicts team. This is after he went over all the assignments. He said, they tell me they can shoot the eyes out of the bucket, and they're awful fast, and a couple of them can jump up and take a quarter off the top of the backboard. And he said it just like that. Bob Engel, one of our players, said, Woody, that may be true, but they're going to have to prove it to us. That's the only thing that was said about Christmas addicts and the thing. Was racism there? Yeah. The fans, uh, my wife now, I didn't know her back then, but she was at the tournament. And as they were leaving, after we had defeated addicts that night, she was grabbed by, behind by uh, a black person. And her mom had taught her what to do, and he bent over and released her, and she ran to the car. The fans were a problem. The players, never. Uh, we didn't, there wasn't a, hell, they're basketball players, you know. They're either going to beat us or we're going to beat them. Uh, as far as the racism was concerned, people have made a big thing out of us being an all-white team and them being all-black and we're playing – it didn't affect us at all. It, it wasn't discussed. Uh, it, it's, but it was there. <laughs> I mean, obviously, and if the people think there's a problem, and there are problems today. I mean, it hadn't gone away entirely. It's a lot less than what it was back in the 50s, which is a good thing. Now, now, if I if I understand correctly, you you're good friends with the Big O, correct? Oh yeah, Oscar and I are great. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, not only did I play against him in that game, but uh, I turned down the Minneapolis Lakers and the St. Louis Hawks to play with Philip sixty six in the old National Industrial Basketball League, and we qualified for the Olympic playoffs and the Pan American playoffs. And it just so happened that Oscar Robertson and Jerry West happened to be on those teams. But uh, I got to know Oscar pretty well. Uh, his coach, Ray Crow, uh, became a friend of mine. Uh, but Oscar and I got together uh, when I came back in Indianapolis after playing at, uh, for Phillip 66 out in Oklahoma. And we see each other occasionally. We talk with each other. And, yeah, uh, we are good friends. By the way... There was an interesting question. As I said, Ray Crow, is co if, if your audience, what, next time they see the movie Hoosiers, in the final game when they show the bench, there's two black guys sitting on the bench. The coach is Ray Crow, who coached at Attics from 1951 through 57, and his teams won 172 games and lost 20 in that span. The guy sitting next to him, the rotund guy, is Oscar's brother, Bailey Robertson. So they can see that. But Ray became a pretty good friend, and, and uh, uh, a friend of his, Joe Wolfler, told me, they said, you know, uh, Ray's got a couple of questions he wants to ask. Yeah, fine. So we got together, and I thought it was interesting. At, it, Ray was a quiet individual, and, and uh, we talked for a while, and, and uh, finally I said, Ray, uh, uh, Joe tells me you've got a question. One of his questions said, Bob, how did your coach prepare you to play against an all-black team? And those were his words. And I said, Ray, he didn't. We never talked about it, just as I told you before. But I thought that was interesting that he would mention that. 
What was recruiting like back in that day? And do you remember the first oh, it was a lot schools? different. I mean, there's so much emphasis now. And you talked about the AAU. Indiana had a rule, the Indiana High School Athletic Association. You could not play on any teams during the uh, uh, summer months. Uh, th- that was outlawed. And some of the AAU people went to the Indiana legislature and got it changed back in the uh, early 70s. Recruiting was a lot different. Uh, I got a letter from Mr. Hinkle the day uh, he wrote it the day after the tournament, and the recruiting was basically done. Uh, Don Slump was All-American at IU. I got a four-page letter from him inviting me to IU and so forth. Joe Sexton uh, was All-American at Purdue from Indianapolis. Yeah, I got a letter from him. Michigan State, it was a... Uh, uh, I was a Michigan, Michigan State graduate that drove me up to Michigan State. Uh, and the rest of them, it was just letters written. And uh, I've, it's interesting now as I look back on it, every one of the letters I got from the players said, now don't worry, you don't have to bring a date. We'll we'll fix you up. <laughs> <laughs> and they would have, but I happened to be going steady at the time. But in any event, I, I'm going to paraphrase the letter. It's it's hanging. There's a big. If any of your audience goes to uh, Hinkle Fieldhouse now, as they go in the middle door, if they turn to the right, there's a huge display of uh, the movie Hoosiers, the Milan team, and they have Mr. Hinkle's letter there. <coughs> and it, it goes like this, handwritten. Uh, by the way, Mr. Hinkle came to Butler in 1920, and he was there till 1970. He was head football, head baseball, head basketball, and athletic director from 1930 until 1970. He said, Dear Bob, congratulations to you and your team winning the state tournament. That's a great accomplishment. Paragraph, we'd like for you to come to Butler University. Just make up your mind to come here. We have a swell school here at, <laughs> at Butler. <laughs> and I have a man interested in you financially to come here. Butler had de-emphasized athletics because they formed the Olympians and they had Groza and Beard from the Kentucky Wonder Five on it. And when they were banned in 1952 from the NPA, the president of the university said no more scholarships. So then he paragraphed and he said, uh, now give me a call when you want to come up. Uh, sincerely, Paul D. Tony Hinkle. P.S. If any of the other guys want to come, bring them along. <laughs> Pretty sophisticated, huh? <laughs> didn't call me. I called him. <laughs> yeah, can you can you do us a favor for the audience? I, I've read about it. I, I I've seen you interviewed just you know hundreds of times, and I know the stories. But what you know, and we could go. We could take three, four, five, six hours talking about both fifty three and fifty four. But can you can you tell us about the timeout before the the last shot? Sure. And and what. Do you still remember what was going through your mind, and what were you thinking through that whole process? Well, I can answer that last question very easily. Nothing. <laughs> I just uh, I felt that I could get a shot off. That's all. Uh, but you don't think when you're uh, out on the court. So that that part of it, uh, there wasn't any thinking. It wasn't. I wasn't thinking. Oh my goodness! If I miss it, you know, we're gonna go into overtime, or we might lose the game, or all of that. Stuff. That wasn't even. 
one thought process through there. One, uh, I'll explain to your fan, uh, to your audience. Uh, one of the reasons that game, besides being a small school and going through the tournament two years to go to the Final Four, was the fact that. Uh, and by the way, uh, 53 was more like the movie. In 54, uh, David Halberstrom called me. He did a ma- national magazine article back in the 80s. And it, uh, he wanted me to do some research. Uh, and it was we had a 15-point winning margin in the state tournament by the time we hit Muncie Central. And Muncie Central had won more state tournaments than anybody. And we used an offense. It was a four-corner offense that I'm sure your audience thinks Dean Smith invented it at North Carolina. We just borrowed it in 53 and 54. But we (laughs) used it as an offensive weapon as well as a defensive. Anytime in a tournament, once we got ahead of a team, no team ever came back on us and 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 defeated us. We used that four corner offense to beat Christmas Addicts with Oscar Robertson sixty five to fifty two. And uh all of this uh, we had Muncie Central and that's the other reason it was a lot of interest because they won more state tournaments than anybody. By the way, their first state championship was against John Wooden, who played at Martinsville, Indiana in nineteen twenty eight. They beat um, Martinsville for the first state championship in 28. That also was the first state championship at, at Butler Fieldhouse. But uh, in, in any event, we got ahead of Muncie Central 23 to 17 at half. Now, typically in the tournament, then we've extended, but it didn't work. They're the only team that came back and got ahead of us, and we found ourselves down 28 to 26 in the fourth quarter. I look, I, we get the ball, and I look over at Marvin Wood, our coach, and he's just got his hands outstretched. I knew that meant for me to hold the ball. Now, we're down two points. State tournament game, fourth quarter, 15,000 fans are standing, screaming their heads off. A go by. look over, and he's still indicating, hold the ball. I stood there for four minutes and 17 seconds, <laughs> down 28 to 26 in the final game of the state tournament, after it was over, the TV station interviewed Woody and said, well, Mr. Woods, what in the world was in your mind? You got that plump kid standing out there for four minutes and 17 seconds. You're down two points in the most important game of your life. He said, I was trying to think of something to do. <laughs> so we tied the score and sold the ball, uh, I hit two free throws. We're up 30 to 28. They uh, they went down, tied to score 30 to 30. I hit across the 10-second line. There's 48 seconds to go, and I look over at Woody, and he's got his hands outstretched, and they let me stand there till there were 18 seconds to go. We called timeout. By the way, the only factual thing in the movie is the last, a lot of similarities, but the only factual thing is the last 18 seconds after the ball is thrown in. I didn't say I'll make it, and there wasn't going to be a decoy. So we call time, go over to the huddle, and Woody said, okay, here's, and if you pay attention to the coach, everything turns out perfectly well, right? In the huddle, he says, okay, Ray, uh, Ray Kraft, the other guard, he said, Ray, you take it out and throw it to Bob, me. And he said, Bob, now you just dribble around until there are five or six seconds to go, and then uh, 
try and get a shot off and, and try and shoot. If they leave enough time in case you miss it, maybe we could tip it in. Gene White, our starting center, said, well, Woody, if we're going to do that, why don't the four of us get on the left side and clear it? Woody said, that's a good idea. I said, let's go over it again. He says, Kraft, you take it out and throw it to Bob. Guess who took it out of bounds? I did. <laughs> you know what? When you hit the final shot, though, nobody pays any attention to that mistake. So that's what happened in the huddle. Uh, it was suggested by our center, Gene White, that everybody get on the uh, the left-hand side. I faked just as as uh, Jimmy did, faked to the left a little bit, and I'm sure the coach told Jimmy Barnes, who was guarding, by the way, Jimmy just died last October, uh, don't let him get around you because that was <clears> – Mr. Hinkle said I had the quickest feet of anybody he coached. And he leaned a little bit to the right, and I went to the left. He must have been off of me three or four feet, and if you – the the final game of 1954 state tournament is in that Hoosier, uh, uh, I forget what they call it, but it's a uh, basketball on the front of it. They've got the final game of Milan, Muncie Central. They've got the cutouts of the movie Hoosiers, and they've got the Hoosier movie in there. But if you look at, if if any of your audience ever sees the final game, They'll see the center, Jim Hines, has his hand on the back of Jimmy Barnes trying to push him out to guard me. And and I've been asked a lot of times, did you know it was going in? And I, yeah, I did. I knew it was going in, but if you watch the game, you'll also see we didn't celebrate because there was still two or three seconds to go. We went back on defense, and it wasn't as sophisticated then. They didn't call time. They took the ball, threw it in, and a guy three-quarters, Leon Agolano, had his arm cocked and ready to throw it three-quarters of the length. The buzzer went off, and then we celebrated. Did you get a good night's sleep that night? No. <laughs> Not because we celebrated so much. I mean, I think we had some, we had Coke or something and ate a meal, but it, you know, uh, everybody was talking. There was a lot of noise going on outside the hotel, <laughs> and uh, uh, now not we slept. I mean, you're tired. You played. You know, to win a state tournament in Indiana back then, you had to play nine games at least, sometimes ten at the larger uh, sectionals. But nine games at least in a month. And as I said, you play two games every Saturday for a month. Well, our season started November 15th and lasted till the 1st of March when the tournament started. And we only played 20 games in those two and a half months, or three and a half months, I guess. So had you so, – so you guys won the state championship. You're riding on cloud nine, and then you find out – Do you, can you let us know how you felt, where you were at, who you got to tell? You find out that you're named Indiana Mr. Basketball. <laughs> okay well again uh, for your audience uh i never had a telephone when i graduated from high school we didn't get electricity till i was uh uh 12 i think it was or 13 and uh our uh, uh our john was a path you know and uh so <laughs> 
we're out uh, we're out uh, uh, doing some work uh, around the yard, and Roger Schroeder, uh, his dad had the grocery store, post office, uh, hardware store, and appliance uh, repair and sales all in one building. He came over and says, "Bob, the Indianapolis Star's calling, and you need to call them back, collect." And so I went in and. I called him back collect, and that's how I found out I was Mr. Basketball. And uh, uh, I, I uh, Bill Shover was the uh, guy in charge of the at the star of the uh, Indiana Kentucky All Star game, and and he's the guy that called me. And uh, he, <laughs> I'll He said uh, uh, that I, you got to be kidding me. Well, uh, it was a, I never I never expected it. I didn't know that much about it, uh, Mister Basketball and all those things. I got the Trester Award and I knew it was a big deal because everybody was clapping, but I didn't know what it really was until later. Uh, we we just didn't have much information, and a lot of time, most of the time, we got our information from Cincinnati instead of Indianapolis. So. Um, we as I said, we were a bunch of naive kids and. We've had a reunion, by the way, every year since 1955 of the team, the coaches, the scorekeepers, the bus drivers, the timekeeper, and uh, we just finished uh, going to North Vernon for the museum in Milan. A lady started a museum in Milan, uh, and you can get it on the Internet. Uh, I don't even know what the thing is, but it's Milan 54, Inc., I think. Uh, 22 years ago, she started in the corner of her antique shop, bought the barber shop 10 years ago when the barber died, renovated it. Three years ago, they raised $350,000 in that little town of Milan, renovated the Indiana, uh, the uh, Milan State Bank building. They have had visitors from all 50 states and 38 foreign countries, including Saudi Arabia, Japan, and New Zealand, come to that museum. And I'm going to tell you, audience, you have to want to go there because it ain't on no major highway. And uh, they have the largest collection of the Hoosier uniforms and memorabilia in the uh, that of anybody they got uniforms from every team that the Hoosiers uh, that the Hickory Huskers played they got the it's it's really unique uh uh not many going to come from Houston to get there but if you're ever in in, in Indiana I'd recommend you go by there well it's actually mylan54.org and as I oh, sit, there you go. <laughs> yes, and, and and as I sit here, I look up on my wall in my office here in Houston, Texas, and and I actually have a nice wooden engraved uh, 60th anniversary plaque, and I'm actually wearing today my yellow polo from mylan54.org oh, yeah. that says right. mylan54 <laughs> state champ. So so I am right on the dot with you there, uh, Bobby. All what, right, B- Bobby. What what possible jersey? would you have worn if it wasn't for the Butler jersey? Did, did you ever lean anywhere else? Could have been, and then all of a sudden you're just like, you know, I'm just going to be a bulldog? No, uh, I never thought about being a bulldog or, or things. Uh, uh, I went to Butler University because I was going to teach and coach. 
I'm sorry. I said that wrong. I was going to coach and teach. Teaching <laughs> wasn't very much interested in my vocabulary. Uh, and I, I, Indiana, Purdue, Michigan State, if I'd have gone to any schools, it would have been one of those three. And probably not Michigan State because it was out of state. But they were too big. Uh, I, I was intimidated. I was a shy, bashful kid in high school and couldn't even stand up and, and talk before my classmates. And uh, There were 30 in my graduating class. went to school with them from the first grade to senior through senior year. But I really was a shy kid. And uh, uh, I, Mr. Hinkle had the reputation of one of the best coaches in the nation. And the first time I met John Wood, and by the way, back then, Butler played, we played eight Big Ten schools, had a home-and-home with Notre Dame, UCLA came in, Denver, Princeton. Uh, I met uh, John Wood when Kentucky won the NCAA tournament in St. Louis. And as I walked up to him and put my hand, I said, Mr. Wooden, I'm Bobby Plump. And he said, before he shook my hand, as he reached his hand out, he said, you played for the great one. Uh, that's a pretty good compliment coming from a guy by the name of John Wooden. So uh, I, uh, uh, I, as I say, I thought I was going to coach and teach. Uh, and by the way, six of my teammates did. Uh, nine of the ten of us went to college. Only one maybe could have afforded to go to college. And uh, uh, I didn't go into coaching because I played for Phillips, and when I came back here, I didn't want to take a pay cut. So, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you an, an interesting story. Since you're calling from Houston, Texas, we had a, a fellow on our team by the name of Ronnie Tripp. Ronnie grew up in an alcoholic family. And, and I, I often hear, we had, he didn't have support. Bob Engel, one of the other starting players, uh, his dad left when he was two years old. My mom died, as I said, when I was five. But Ronnie Truett grew up in this alcoholic family. They were divorced. His grand, he lived with his grandparents. But he basically ran free. Uh, by the way, D'Angelo Pizzo, the writer, co-producer, knew nothing about his dad. Uh, his dad was a great guy. Never created a problem. Uh, great musician. Worked every day. But he's an alcoholic. From that background... <clears throat> Ronnie Truett got a scholarship at the University of Houston, Guy Lewis's first year. Went into coaching, won the 3A championship, and at Cypress something right outside of uh, Houston, Texas, uh, where he became principal of this middle school. Ronnie, would, uh, only two of us are deceased. Uh, Ronnie died in 1988 of colon cancer. Bob Engel died a year ago, January. And... From that background, when he died, go by it's for something. I wish I could think of the name. They'll ha they'll have it at the museum. You could get it there. You go by that school now, and it's named Ronnie Truett Middle School. Wow. Wow. Nice <laughs> success story. Yes, and and I was trying to look that up while you were telling me the story because uh, I've heard of that because my wife actually brought that up to me. We were sitting downstairs a couple of months ago, and she brought that up to me. I didn't know it until about a couple of months ago. Um, yeah. Bobby, tell us tell us about Tony Hinkle. Tell us a little bit about um, – uh, did you have to eat mayonnaise sandwiches also? 
<laughs> Tony Inkle was one of the greatest guys that I've ever known. Uh, great coach, but he was a great individual too. But he was also the tightest person ever. I think he had fish hooks <laughs> in his pockets because he never reached for any cash. I can tell you that. Uh, yeah, uh, we uh, when we go by bus, you know, he'd stop at one of his favorite ex players. Uh, if they had a restaurant or a uh, drugstore or anything, and we'd get uh, we'd get sandwiches and one of those small uh, little milk things uh, on the way, and that and we get same thing coming back. But when we qualified, but in 1958, the Butler team I played on was the first team to qualify for a national tournament, and we qualified for the NIT, which was a pretty big deal back then because. They only had 16 teams in the in the NCAA tournament at that time, and he took us to Mama Leone's, and we had never been to a fancy restaurant, and this was a real fancy thing, and, and everybody sat down, and you know there were there were utensils on the right, and there were utensils on the left, and there were utensils above the plate, and everybody started looking, and, and Mr. Hinkle was up there, he was grinning, he said, "Hey, fellas." Don't worry about it. He said, start on the right till you get finished. Go to the left and then start up above. He said, it'll all be taken care of. <laughs> but Mr. Hinkle was fun to play for. He made it fun. He was, he was, uh, practices were difficult, but they were enjoyable. Uh, I can give you, a, uh, Marvin Wood, our coach, uh, went to Butler. That isn't the reason I went there, by the way. Uh, but he went to Butler, and this will give you an idea of, of Mr. Hinkle. By the way, he'd have a handful of tickets that, uh, if we uh, had somebody coming in that, you know, we could give him tickets. But he made us shoot free throws against him to get the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> and he's pretty good. Uh, when Woody was there, and this is kind of the way he coached, uh, he made his point. Uh, but he made it in in uh, references like this. Obviously, if you have the ball on the side and a guy cuts through the middle and he's open, you're supposed to pass it to him, right? Well, Woody, in practice one time, back then, Woody shot a two-end set shot. He graduated in 1950 uh, from Butler. And <laughs> he was on the side. He saw the guy cut through, and he faked it to him, stepped back, and shot the two-end set shot. All of a sudden, he heard, Woods, Woods. I know a blind man that liked to have those eyes. <laughs> Woody said he never missed a cutter after that. <laughs> so so in 57, you were the most valuable player for Butler. In 58, the same. And then in 58, you got to play uh, on a, the college basketball all-star team. What was that like? Yeah, that uh, the East-West All-Star team, they had 12 from the East and 12 from the West. Uh, interesting experience, played at Madison Square Garden. At the, and I can tell you that the floor at Hinkle Fieldhouse was a hell of a lot better than the floor at Madison Square Garden. It had a lot of dead spots in it because I remember practicing there, and you'd be dribbling down the floor, and all of a sudden the ball didn't come back up. But it was great. Uh, again, it was a... Uh, it was something out of the realm of possibility. I, I didn't know anything about the East-West All-Star Game, and and to show you how Mr. Hinkle was respected, the same week that the East-West All-Star Game at Madison Square Garden, the AAU National Tournament was held in Denver, 
I didn't know they had an AAU national tournament. Well, Phillips and the National Industrial Basketball League played under the auspices of AAU. So the only time I talked with Mr. Hinkle outside the baseball diamond or the uh, or the uh, basketball court, I went to him. I said, Mr. Hinkle, I, I know this is a great honor, this East-West All-Star game, but that AAU tournament's out in Denver, national tournament, and they're telling me that maybe – uh, the team from Indiana wanted me to go out with him. He said, maybe a National Industrial Basketball League team will see you and pick you up. I didn't even know they had a league. He said, I think you ought to go to the East-West All-Star game. I go to the East-West All-Star game, and while I'm there, Abe Saperstein is calling, or his representative, to play in the Harlem Globetrotter College All-Star game. $100 a game, 18 games, $1,800. Now, Dad made 3200 all year. Mr. Hinkle, I can make $1,800. He said, Bob, that's a lot of money. But if you take that, you can't play for Phillips 66, and I have an appointment for you in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, when you get back. I turned it down. Archie Dees, by the way, who was All-American at IU, number one draft choice uh, in the NBA, played at I, uh, for Branch McCray. He called Branch, and he said, if you turn it down, Arch, you have no bargaining rights. And for your fans, the NBA back then wasn't that big. Uh, Archie, as the number one draft choice offer, was $8,000 a year, and teachers were signing for 4500 if that gives them an idea. So I turned it down. I go to Oklahoma. The only persons there was the head coach, Bud Browning, Gib Ford, the assistant. Bud Browning was the uh, Olympic coach in 1948, Phillips beat the Kentucky 1-5 and represented the United States in the Olympics. They did the same thing in 56. I shoot for 10 minutes. He tells me to take a shower. While I'm in that shower, I'm thinking, Mr. Hinkle, what have you done to me? And man, I saw $1,800 flying out that shower room. I come out, and they said, we'd like to offer you a job. Well, I became his assistant coach, and we were in the Middle East for seven weeks representing the United States uh state department and i said bud how in the world did you hire me they had never seen me play they never saw a film i shoot for 10 minutes and they tell me to take a shower he said while you were showering i called lou wilkie who was vice president of phillips petroleum company and i said i told him he said you know this plump kid can shoot and he's awful fast but he's pretty small lou wilkie said if mr hinkle said he could play hire him wow on his word alone. I forgot what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, you were chatting about my question was tell us a little bit about Tony Hinkle, and we just got. Uh, oh you, yeah, you, and, you, and you sure <laughs> did that. So, so what was the professional your professional basketball career like? Was there a lot of difficult decisions to make? Do you feel like you made the right decisions? And can you chat about that a little bit? Oh yeah, there's no question. I made the right decision. Uh, I would have if I would have gone to Minneapolis or St. Louis. Obviously, you're subject to cut, and I was subject to cut at Phillips 66. Uh, if I'd have gone there, my I wouldn't have made eight thousand a year. That wouldn't have been my. By the way, Archie held out. He signed with Denver in in the National Industrial Basketball League, and finally got twelve thousand two weeks before the season started. Uh, I would have made maybe four thousand, forty-one, forty-five hundred, something like what teachers were making. 
And I ended up making 6000 at at Phillips. But the key was, and I didn't know this, it didn't make any difference. If, if you didn't make the team, you still had that salary, and you worked for Phillips Petroleum Company. So it was security. And I, 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 I got married two weeks after graduation from Butler, and uh, I needed security. <laughs> so... And we played a great schedule. Uh, the NBA then had eight teams. Three of them were, one of them was in Fort Wayne, one of them was in Syracuse, one of them was in Rochester, New York. And we had teams in New York. Cleveland was owned by George Steinbrenner. Uh, Akron, Denver, San Francisco, Seattle, Wichita, Peoria, and Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And the furthest west the NBA went was Minneapolis with George Mikan. Um so it, it, was a, it was the right decision purely by luck. I made a lot of right decisions by luck. There wasn't much thought put into it. I wanted to play basketball, and, and that was an opportunity to play and make a good living uh, and travel throughout the United States. We also traveled for jobbers, uh, uh, Phillips 66 jobbers. And we play exhibition games. We, as I said, we were in the Middle East for seven weeks for the State Department. We were in Mexico for four weeks for the State Department, and uh, so it was it was a great life. Uh, the most anybody ever played for Phillips was six years. Uh, I mean, they weren't going to pay you a lot of money. They wouldn't get you out working. You know, uh, there were two players before the. Uh, before it was taken over by the NCAA and 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 the professional uh, league for the Olympics, Bob Curlin uh, played in two Olympics. My teammate Bertie Hollison played in the '56 and '60 Olympics, and as I said, '48 and '56 were represented by Phillips. Uh, so it, it it was a great experience. It broadened. I, I finally figured out, you know. Coming from a real small town, maybe Pierceville had 75 people in it, maybe 80. Um, I figured if you were from Indianapolis, and certainly if you were from New York, with all of that population, you had to be a hell of a lot smarter than I was. And that traveling around and and the leisurely travel that we did uh, for the games for Philip 66 broaden my perspective to the standpoint that I finally figured out that people are just people. It doesn't make any difference if they got a billion dollars or they got ten dollars. People are people. And they want the same things. They just express it in different manners and often intimidating manners. Uh, that's an that's probably the most important lesson I learned when I was playing for Phillips and being able to travel around. Uh, it's just, uh, I, I can't explain uh, or emphasize enough how um, naive and and uh, backward, not backward, uh, afraid to speak out because coming from a small town what the hell do you know uh that was that was important uh so yeah i i think i made the right decision uh by luck with a little help from mr hinkle <laughs> uh 
And by the way, I hired a guy by the name of Charlie Bowerman who played at Wabash, Indiana. He's from uh, Wabash College. He's from Amo, Indiana. Charlie stayed with Phillips out in Bartlesville. And in 2003, he was one of the last three that was interviewed for president of uh, of Phillips Petroleum Company. And as a sidelight, Phillips has had a team since 1919, or they did. They've disbanded it now. But K.S. Boots Adams was on that team. K.S. Boots Adam became CEO of Phillips in 1938. Every CEO at Phillips from that date until 2003 was an ex-basketball player. Uh, the people today would know uh, uh, Bud Adams was his son. That owned, I think it was the Atlantic, uh, Atlanta uh, Falcons. Uh, so they had an emphasis on sports, and in the 20s and 30s, they hired people especially in the 30s, they hired people. uh, They used a basketball team as a recruiting tool to get people to Phillips Petroleum Company. Now, you've played basketball uh, numerous, numerous thousands of games. What was it like or how did it feel or, or what was the process when you were thinking, you know what, it's about time to hang up the sneakers and how hard was that? Oh, it, it it wasn't difficult. I I, I quit playing uh, uh, at Phillips. I played three and was assistant coach. And uh, uh, the most serious injury I had playing, John Barnhill was playing for Cleveland at the time. And it was one of my – I became a defensive expert, by the way, at Phillips, believe it or not. And uh, he stole the ball and uh, coming into the right side, and I went up to block it and – caught an elbow in my ribs and my lung deflated. Uh, so I had a collapsed lung and it took me, uh, I don't know, six weeks to get back in, uh, uh, on the court again. And I figured I had enough. So I became Bud's assistant coach and I was ready to get back to Indiana. Uh, and then I played in independent leagues here till I was 70. And that's when I hung them up. And, and and how hard was it? I mean, did you think basketball on a daily basis? What did you move from once you once you got out of the game? Oh no, I didn't. Not on a daily basis. Uh, uh, I might in in the early uh, uh, days when I came back to Indianapolis, I'd play a couple of times a week, and it got to once a week. Uh, uh, there were a group of us, uh, maybe fifteen, sixteen. Uh, of which I was the second oldest. Uh, I played with those guys for about 15 years. Uh, I, I really hung up the competitive basketball. You know, we just we just play on uh, four on four on one end of the court. Uh, from a competitive standpoint, uh, I quit playing in the mid 40s uh, on AAU teams. Uh, it wasn't difficult. Uh, you know, I'd had a lot of experiences. I've been around enough and. Uh, uh, it was it was getting to be a little bit at that age it was getting to be a little bit of a grind so uh i hung it up i i, I i'm going to tell you a story of, so your audience will know how naive we were now i've already told about the 30 or 40,000 people came through my island that next day and we've had a reunion every year since 1955 this was in the mid 70s now after our reunion dinner, we're sitting around, uh, and Gene White, myself, Bob Engel, and Kenny Wendelman, I remember we're sitting there, and this portrays kind of what we thought. Now, this is 20 years later or more. 
Bob Engel, after a little conversation, said, fellas, you think they're going to be talking about this next year? <laughs> That's a true story also. <laughs> I mean, all these things have come about, and I'm very appreciative of it, but uh, we we didn't realize it was going to be that important. <laughs> year after year after year is when it's talked about now. Uh, Bobby, yep. Bobby, th- uh, this is where I get my six degrees of separation. Uh, as I told you earlier, I, I went to Broderpool High School, and in 1986, uh, uh, the athletic director, Gene Ring, came into the basketball team and said, guys, they're filming a movie, and we're like, oh, okay, well, and it's going to be called Hoosiers, and they don't, they can't get enough people at Hinkle Fieldhouse to fill the gym, so they want the broderpool Chatard game to be there, and at halftime, they're going to fill the championship game. So I, I'm assuming... I may have been there at the same time that you were there because I was on the floor. They filmed the final scenes for the state championship game at halftime. What was your mindset when they came to you and said, hey, look, you know, we're going to make a movie? You know, uh, they never called me. Uh, didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, the only contact I had, by the way, Roger Schroeder, one of my teammates, ended up his career as coach at Broad Ripple High School. Uh, he was the first coach at Marshall High School here in Indianapolis and was there until they closed the school. He was there 20 years. Uh, by the way, his daughter worked in the film industry here at that time, uh, and he had a, a transcript of the movie, uh, the actual part saying what they were going to say. And it's a good thing I wasn't a director or, or a producer <laughs> because I read that, and I said, man, this is going to be awful. Uh I, the only contact that I had, <laughs> Mary Weir, who was a granddaughter of Woody Weir, coached at Marion High School here in Indiana, was in charge of costumes. She called me and wanted to know what material our uniform was made of. And I said, Mary, you got to be kidding me. You think I'd have looked at the, <laughs> what the uniform was made of? I'm just happy to have it. So I didn't have any con- Nobody had any contact. Uh, except Marvin Wood. They asked him to be a consultant, but he was coaching St. Mary's girls team at Notre Dame at the time and couldn't take time off. And so your uh, audience knows why it was made that way. Uh, They did use the, uh, they were going to make it exactly what happened in 53 and 54. But Angelo Pizzo, the writer and co-producer, grew up in Bloomington, Indiana. His father was a professor there. David Anspaugh, the director, grew up in Decatur, Indiana, and they lived this story. If you lived in Indiana in the 50s or 60s, 70s, 80s, well, now, even later, but especially back then, you lived the story. When they were fraternity brothers at IU, they dreamed about and talked about making a movie of the 53, 54 Thing. They had no idea it was going to come to pass, but in the 70s, it looked like it might come to pass. So Angelo went to Milan because he said the first thing I learned about making a movie was you have to have controversy. So he went to Milan looking for controversy, and he talked to the athletic director, who happened to be Gene White, who was the center on our team when we won the state. And he said, well, Gene, I know you had a coaching change at the end of your sophomore year. How was the new coach, Marvin Wood, accepted? And he said, well, initially there was a problem. He said, you know what? Everybody loved Marvin Wood. He says, hmm, 
Well, what about parents? They, they get upset. No, Gene said parents never <laughs> interfered once, and they didn't. Two fathers never came to a game uh, in the two years. They were farming. They didn't have time to come in there and watch these kids play basketball. And he thought, well, small school. Did anybody get crossways dating? Gene said, no, we worked all that out. Angelo walked away and said, how can I make a movie about hugging, loving, and kissing? And went back and changed the whole script, and that's why the only factual thing is the last 18 seconds. They wanted to keep that in there. There's a lot of similarities, but nobody on the team and and no body from Milan was a consultant on the movie. Uh, I mean, they knew enough of the story to go ahead and do the thing. You know, which, which came first, and can you talk a little bit about both of them? Uh, the book, Bobby Plump, Last of the Small Town Heroes, and, of course, your restaurant there in Broderpool, uh, Plump's Last Shot. Well, Plump's Last Shot uh, came about, uh, we opened that in 1995. Uh, I had uh, purchased a building in uh, Broad Ripple back in 84, and I had my insurance and financial planning agency in there. And, and our son, Jonathan, uh, uh, was married to a lady that had a restaurant in Broad Ripple. And for two years, he kept saying, Dad, we ought to, uh, I moved out of there, by the way, uh, back in 86, two years, and rented it. There were a couple of restaurants that tried to start. He said, Dan, we ought to start a restaurant. I, said, I don't know about that. And uh, so he finally convinced me. And so that was opened in 1995. Jonathan, our son, runs that. He has the license and everything. The book came out in 1998, and that was produced by a, a gentleman here in Indianapolis by the name of Joe Wolfla. And he talked to me probably three or four years before I, you know, uh, you stop and think about writing, uh, or I didn't write it. I, I, uh, they recorded what I said and had somebody uh, clean it up and make sure that everything was okay. Uh <laughs> You stop and think about writing a book on your life. What do you put in there? What? 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 How do you? How do you do that? Well, they organized it, and uh, that, as I say, it came out in '88, and it was a success. I think we, Joe, told me we sold thirty thousand copies of hardcover. We're out of print now. Uh, they're thinking of uh, uh, reprinting it. So. Uh, uh, and I, I don't like to watch things that, uh, I mean, I've got a lot of CDs and things that I haven't even looked at. Uh, and it was difficult for me to read the book. I didn't know if I was going to like it or not like it. Uh, but it uh, it's a pretty good book, I think. Uh, and hopefully we can get it reprinted sometime this year. So the restaurant came first, and the, uh, uh, the book was uh, later. By the way, I didn't make that title up, Last of the Small Town Heroes. That was some <laughs> publisher guy. <laughs> Bobby, uh, you, you just recently had a birthday, and you got a. Can you tell everybody out there the the? Uh, I, I I love it to be honest with you. I, I actually would like to get a print of it, but uh, tell everybody what the. Uh, but, they have the they have the prints down at the Milan Museum. Just call them. Awesome, awesome. So so is is Bobby Plump? Retired? I mean, what does Bob? Can you take us through a day no, of what I, Bobby uh, Plump does? 
Yeah, no, uh, I I have a financial planning agency. We do retirement estate planning and things like that. My daughter, uh, who's the person that answered the phone, and her husband are in here. And it's not hard to sit in this chair, you know. It's not real, <laughs> not much of an exertion. And I have learned some things throughout the years that, <coughs> excuse me, that I can impart to people. So I come in every day uh, and most weekends. Uh, I at the restaurant, uh, people come. Uh, if they'll call me, I go over and meet them, uh, and and I enjoy it. I, I truly enjoy it. It's a uh, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, sometimes there's problems, but what the heck? We all have problems. Uh, so that part, uh, I. I uh, I'm going to, at the 80th birthday, what you were referring to, we had a, uh, over at the restaurant, uh, my daughter's got quite a uh, list of people, and we probably had three or 400 come through there uh, that day uh, celebrating my 80th birthday. And towards the end of it, Graham Honaker, who's a, a fundraiser for Butler University, and he's also on the board of the Milan Museum, Said Bob, we got something here. I want to uh, want to show you. And I said, Yeah, okay. And everybody was around, and I saw this drape thing. There is not a uh, a photograph of me taking the last shot, releasing it. There's a photograph of it going through the bucket, but not of me releasing it. And he knew this. He's a young man uh, and really very talented. So they hired a. <coughs> excuse me, National Wildlife uh, Artist. And he painted a picture of the final shot. And, and he's got it down in great detail. Uh, and it's uh, in my office right now, the original. And they made copies, as I said, and the Milan Museum has those. It was quite a, uh, it was quite a surprise. Uh, and there's also a picture I saw it in the paper. I don't know. I don't have a print of it, <clears throat> but the photographer was taking things and he's got Graham and myself. I'm talking to him and, and laughing and it's superimposed on the, uh, on the, uh, uh, painting that the wildlife artist did. Uh, and as I say, they are on uh sale down to Milan museum. And once again, that's Milan54.org. A little shameless plug there. Um, Bobby, tell us, um, wh- what do you think, and, and, and I'll, I'll make it quick because I know I've kept you longer and, and we appreciate your time, but what do you think about the game of basketball today in the state of Indiana? I'm glad I played when I did. <laughs> They're a lot better than I was. <laughs> uh, I, I think that as far as the talent's concerned, uh, I think it's a progression uh, uh, along with – uh, you know, basketball from the 50s was different than it was in the 30s. Basketball in the uh, 80s was different than it was in the 50s, and basketball today is different than what it was in the 80s. The one thing I am very disappointed in is the fact that they went to the multi-class tournament because I think it's a detriment to the student-athlete from a recognition standpoint, especially I just pointed out the first year of the multi-class tournament, it went from 700 and some thousand to 480,000. They have not been back to that yet. 
nobody knows who wins the state tournament in Indiana anymore. I asked people that come in the restaurant, I said, and they asked me, said, what do you think of the multi-class? <clears throat> no, they say, what do you think of the class tournament? And I said, I love the class tournament. That's what we had before we went to multi-class. <laughs> and I asked them, I, I say, who, who won the tournament last year? And they said, which, which, uh, d- uh, which part? One, two, three, or four? I said, name one. I don't care. They can't do it. Uh, th- that's a shame because it was such a tradition. And I, I could talk to you for five hours i could tell you how it came about uh which wasn't very uh above board but in any event uh the players themselves i'm happy uh and and pleased for them when they win a state tournament i i still think it's a great accomplishment no matter what division it is uh but i'll say it again uh they seem to have a lot more talent than what we had back in the 50s and uh but I'm proud of them. I mean, they they still uh, – there's nothing like high school basketball. I mean, the enthusiasm, and it's just there, you know. Uh, some of the AAU uh, part is not so good. Uh, I think there are people involved sometimes in AAU that perhaps do not have the best interest of the athlete uh, in mind, but be that as it may, uh, they're still pretty good. Bobby Plump, uh, you know, 1954 IHSAA state champion, 1954 Indiana, Mr. Basketball Trester award medal winner for mental attitude. Uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I, I, I'm, I know you, you kind of don't know our audience, but our audience is pretty educated and I think they're going to really enjoy, uh, this program, and I thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to chat basketball with us and helping to keep the nostalgia alive. Well, I appreciate that. The thanks should come from me. It, it, it's nice to be remembered after uh, 63 years. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you, Billy. You have a great day. Thank you so much.